And so Gary asked me really to speak on something that was really on my heart, and I wanted to speak to you on one of my favorite passages, which is on a man called Mephibosheth. Has anybody ever heard of Mephibosheth? A few guys? Anybody not heard of Mephibosheth? A few? Okay. So Mephibosheth is one of my favorite characters in Scripture, and he's linked with one of my favorite leaders in Scripture, um, and that's King David. So if you know King David, he was that shepherd boy from an outback, from a pasture, from a pasture that God took, and um, Samuel anointed him to be king. And then David fights Goliath and briefly wins the favor of King Saul, and that all seems to be going great until Saul begins to get threatened a bit by David. And then David runs, and he kind of goes into this relationship with Saul, where Saul's sometimes calling him back, feeling bad about it, trying to kill him again. It's very stressful for David. And he's this long wait to be king. But in the middle of his war with Saul, he has an ally, and his ally is actually Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is a guy that's actually in line to be king, but Jonathan knows that David is God's man and that God has his hand on David. And so Jonathan helps David, but makes him promise that when David is king, that he will remember his family. And so Saul and Jonathan continue to rule Israel, and eventually they're killed um, by the Philistines in the Battle of Jezreel. And what happens next is David maybe is expecting, this is my moment. I am now going to be king, but it's not to be, because he is crowned king over Judah, which is part of Israel, but he has to wait for the whole of the country because another guy comes after Saul, a guy called Ishboth, and David waits. Eventually, Ishboth is assassinated in his bed by two people trusted to care for him, and then David eventually becomes king. And on his way to become king, David conquers a city called Jerusalem, which you all know, and then he takes up residence in Jerusalem. And that's really the story of David. And I am really taken with the way that God puts his hand on David and the fact that David is so faithful through that story. And nestled within that story, just in the chapter when we hear about Ishboth's death, we hear about someone called Mephibosheth. Now, in my Bible version, Mephibosheth is actually described between brackets, which is really apt, because for me, Mephibosheth is that. He's someone in brackets. He's not part of the main story. And as you'll see on the screen, Mephibosheth's story is, is that actually he is Jonathan's son. And while he's being taken care of by the nurse trusted to look after him, word comes to the nurse that Jonathan and Saul have been killed. And so the nurse panics, and she grabs the child, and the child falls, and at the age of five, the child is disabled for the rest of its life. And that's the story of Mephibosheth. Just a little side note in brackets. 
But then he pops up again in 2 Samuel 9. And I love this story. I'm sorry. You've kind of got me at one of those moments where this is one of my favorite stories. So forgive me. 2 Samuel 9. What happens is David has conquered Jerusalem. Ishboth is dead. David is king. And David is in Jerusalem and he's beginning to put things right. And he remembers the promise that he made to Jonathan about looking after his family. Now, Jonathan has been killed, but David wants to honor God. And let me just read that with you this morning. So, it's 2 Samuel 9. You can follow it in your Bibles or you can follow it on screen. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Aniel. When Mephibosheth, saw son, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all, that la all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba. Saul's steward and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son called Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. What a story. If you're one of those people this morning that hasn't heard of Mephibosheth, what a story. I love that story. That really got my heart. I have, um, you might have noticed my young son starting to run up and eye the drums. If he gets in there, it's going to be crazy. But my young son has started watching wildlife shows with me. I was such a geek growing up, and I loved watching every wildlife show I could, and I am so thrilled that he seems to be as big a geek as I am. And yesterday we were watching a show about wolves, and then came on about lions. 
Now, if you know anything about lions, lions are an amazing creature to, to watch. We took our kids to Belfast Zoo one day, and that was the highlight, waiting to see this lion. And this lion was lying at the back in some shed, couldn't be bothered coming out. He was having a kip. He was having none of it. And I was trying to point to grass. Is he in there? And the kids went home. Lion doesn't exist. Anyway, lions, fantastic creatures. When a new lion comes into a pride, despite the beauty of a lion, they do something pretty brutal. You see, you know all those wee cute Simba lions you see run around? Well, the new lion will walk around and he will butcher every single one of them. Cute or not, helpless or not. Every single one he just kills like that. And I'll tell you why he does it. He does it because he wants to meet with a female and he wants his line to succeed. And all of those little, tiny, helpless, cute things are actually threats. And you know, in many ways, that's the way the world works. Because we're told that it's a dog-eat-dog world. And actually, when you look at the way human beings have led people through the years, it's not too dissimilar. You may have heard the story of the princes in the tower and the fact that threats are pretty much disposed of. So the princes in the tower, was a, there was a baddie king in England, and he had these two, uh, I think they were nephews, and he had them locked away and killed so he could be king. And when you look at the run-up of David in the throne, and this can seem quite grim, the story is racked with conspiracy, assassinations. And so the smart thing for David to do, if you were David's chief advisor, and you heard about this guy Mephibosheth, what you would do is you would simply bump him off because you don't need him around, okay? You don't need him around. But David does something very different. And David acts completely different to how the world acts. And this morning we're going to look at the way David acts and we're going to draw out three things from that that we can learn as a church. We're going to look at David bringing Mephibosheth to the table of grace. We're going to look at the redeemed identity of Mephibosheth. And we're going to look at the messy nature of church. You see, when David asked the king, sorry, when David as the king asked, is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? That is a really interesting verse. You see, David has waited a long time to be king. And throughout that verse, we stop, well, we sometimes hear the word David being replaced by the term the king. And the reason why it's doing that in Scripture is because the Scripture is telling people around that there's no mistake that David is the king. It's not Saul. It's not Ishboath. It is David. And for the readers of that passage, the passage wants to tell us that David is king. But God uses, or sorry, David uses a different phrase. Because when David goes to talk about what he's going to Mephibosheth, instead of saying, I'm going to show Mephibosheth my kindness, David very deliberately used the word, is there someone I can show God's kindness to? And there's a big clue in that about David's heart. Because whereas the passage wants to let you know who the king is, it would seem that David knows who the real king is. Do you understand? 
And that's the difference between David, Saul, Ishboth, and many of the kings that came after David and Solomon. They knew who the king was. And you see, David restores everything to Saul that would have been expected to Saul as king. When you think about that from just a pure common sense point of view, that is very dangerous to restore to a guy who's a potential for the throne everything that a king like Saul would have had. It would have been a lightning rod to some of Saul's supporters. Can you imagine if you were one of the Saul's camps, one of, one of the people in Saul's camp, and you wanted Saul's family to be in charge? And suddenly this kid comes in from nowhere and he's given everything that Saul would have had. But David doesn't care about that. David doesn't care about the risk because David knows this is God's kingdom and not David's. But David doesn't just give this man wealth. David doesn't just give this man all the things that Saul would have had. David goes one step further. Because David invites this man to sit at his very table. David invites this guy who was actually an enemy of his through the family to sit at his table. You know, when Saul was chasing David, Saul used to scold Jonathan. And he would say, are you an idiot? Do you not realize you're helping the guy who is robbing your birthright? And that was the attitude in Saul's family. But David completely goes around that attitude and invites someone from Saul's family at his table. And it says through that passage that he was blessed all the time. Mephibosheth was blessed because he ate at the king's table. Because when he ate at the king's table, he assumed the identity of being part of the king's family. He had the ear of the king. He sat with the king's sons. He was regarded as one of the sons of David. Isn't that grace? But do you know something? In Mark 1 and 15, we hear about another kingdom. Because Jesus tells people, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. And one of the things I love about this story is it is a very soft echo of what Jesus does for us. Because aren't we like Mephibosheth? Aren't we crippled and broken by the world around us? But aren't we brought to the table of grace? Aren't we going to enjoy the Lord's table after this sermon? And who here deserves to be at that table? And would we not be at that table, but if it not were for Jesus Christ, who had grace? Is that not true? Doesn't Ephesians 2 tell us that we were seated at God's side because of what Christ Jesus did? Isn't that true, folks? Aren't we told in Romans 8 that we were far from God, but we were adopted as sons to be with God through what Jesus did? Isn't that true? Aren't you here as an adopted son, as an adopted daughter, 
of Jesus. And so, in my mind, the church must remember that no matter what it feels it's called to do, it is called to bring people to the table of grace as we come to the table of grace. You know, I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, right? And I would say when I was younger and cooler, I don't think I was ever cooler, right? I think I was younger, but some of these really cold mornings, I'm not quite so sure, right? I am definitely starting to feel it. And when I was a youth pastor, I remember one meeting, and there was lots of vociferous conversation about what should happen at camp, lots of really eager opinions, and lots of debate. And it was everything that was going to happen at this youth camp. And in our little world, this was the most important thing that had ever happened in the history of the church. <laughs> but I remember God giving me a picture and me sharing it with the group. And the picture was this. That through all our really important conversations, through all our really important things, we were setting the table. We needed to be good stewards. We needed to make sure that the entertainment was right. We needed to make sure all these things were happening and the kids would have activities. But the whole purpose of this was an encounter with God. Because if we had this wonderful camp with flashing logos and all these lovely things, and God wasn't there, we might as well ask him to stay at home and play Xbox, really. You know, when you invite someone around to your house, you'll make the effort of buying a nice food. You'll create a nice atmosphere. You'll bring out your nice cutlery. You'll do all your nice stuff, and that will show that you respect the person, and you're creating a space. But if that person doesn't come, it's a waste of time. Sometimes in church, we get so caught up in the type of cutlery we use, the type of food we bake, the way we present things, and we lose the picture that we are creating a space for an encounter with the living God. And sometimes we get so caught up in our preferences for cutlery and food, we forget that it's all about bringing people to the table of grace. And what I reminded our youth leaders was that we want to create an encounter with the living Holy Father because that is the only way that people will be changed beyond superficial emotion. Is that not true? Amen. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so the church, every church must remember that its primary objective is to thank God for the table of grace and bring people to the table of grace. Amen. Yes. Okay. And so David brings Mephibosheth to the table of grace. But the second thing happens, and maybe this is the second function of the church. The second thing happens to Mephibosheth, which I absolutely love, and that is the redemption of identity. You see, Mephibosheth is described in the opening passage in terms of his condition. There's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. This is Mephibosheth's opening statement, and Mephibosheth has heard this since he was five. Now, we know from when Jesus healed people in the New Testament of infirmities how life-changing it was, and this was hundreds of years beforehand, and I don't think it was any easier if you had this type of infirmity and had that lack of care. And so people, unfortunately, back then had a very low level of respect given to them. And so Mephibosheth is descri described as the very start as he is lame in both feet. This is the title that hangs over this poor guy. 
And it's interesting as the passage progresses that we hear that he was in low debar. Now, not, now, if you were talking to Mephibosheth and you heard that he'd been lame on both feet, you might ask the question, how did that happen? And he might have to tell you that actually I was neglected. I was dropped. And you might have to hear that he was dropped because his father and his grandfather, Saul and Jonathan, were killed. And if you, if you dig a bit further and you find out who they were, you might get to hear that Mephibosheth was actually in line for the throne and he lost it. And it seems like his life is finished. And he ends up in a place called Lodabar, which is actually in Gilead. And Matthew Henry says that, well, you guys have been studying Joshua, am I right? And you've been hearing about Joshua pushing into the land. From memory, you might remember there were two tribes that before they crossed over the Jordan, they said, we quite like it here. So if it's okay, we'd like to stay here. And the agreement was, you can stay there if you help clear the land, and then you can go back and you can stay, right? Well, actually, this is where Mephibosheth ends up, in Gilead, which is east of the Jordan. So in a sense, Mephibosheth doesn't just lose his royal title. He's actually out of the promised land in a way altogether across the river in the backwater in the outpost of the country, over the river. He's as far as you can get from the kingdom. And what does David do? I love this. David says, will you bring that guy from Lodabar here? David, was, David literally brought him from a low place. Will, will you bring that guy back in here? And then he comes. And I love what David does. Because he starts working on redeeming his identity. And he begins to talk to Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth's seen David, he bows down low. And David says, Mephibosheth. Now, if you read your passage, there's something really interesting about David saying Mephibosheth. First of all, there's an exclamation mark. And that would tell you that whilst Mephibosheth is very deferential, he's a bit scared, David is Mephibosheth. The second thing about that passage is that actually David seems to be the first person that uses his actual name. Everybody in that passage describes this guy by what he's lost up until that point. He's the lame guy. He's the guy outside the kingdom. He's the son of someone who was murdered. And it's David who begins to restore his identity by actually calling him his name. Isn't that interesting? David says, don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness. And if you had any doubt about the syndrome hanging over Mephibosheth, listen to this line. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That is the mentality that hung over Mephibosheth. Romans 1 tells us that when man and woman were created, when we were infected by sin and shame, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And actually we exchanged the truth about ourselves for a lie too. It says that we exchanged our thinking. Although we thought we were clever, we became fools. In his book, Abba's Child, one of my all-time favorite books, Brennan Manning 
says that when man and woman sinned, they went into hiding. And the truth is, we've been hiding in our sin ever since. And the call of God has come out of hiding. David Benner says in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, that when man sinned against God, he stole something he actually never needed to steal because he had everything in God. And when he decided to make his own destiny for himself, he made himself a false God because he no longer trusted God. And Benner says that as we go around in our lives today as false gods, we have a different identity than a God-given identity because we try to find the glory of Jesus in the things of the world, and that can never, never, never match up. And as false gods, we can never, never, never deliver because there's only one living God. And so Benner says the call on our lives is to undo the things that we have wound around ourselves. I think it was Thomas Merton said that we wind things around ourselves to try to hide. But the call of all of us is to come out of hiding and to remember our identity as we were first created in God. And if Adam was the first Adam, Christ is the second Adam that gives us that. Because Romans 5 tells us that is not the end of the story. And that Jesus has come. And through the blood on the cross, he makes us right to become friends with God again and to discover who we are. And so the call of discipleship, I was reading a book by Mike Breen, and he said the two greatest fears among church leaders are this. What is true discipleship? And the second fear is, am I doing it? Discipleship is this. It is becoming more and more like Jesus. And if our first mission is to call people to the table of grace, our second mission is to help people become more like Jesus. Is that right? Do you want to become more like Jesus? I want to become more like Jesus. And so I love this story. Because Mephibosheth is given everything from nothing. Everything from nothing. And I love this bit at the end because he has a kid himself. The man without a future has a legacy. And I love at the end when the parting shot is a Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always sat at the king's table and he was lame in both feet. But it's not so different from what we hear at the start of the chapter because that line is almost a tagline in spite of all his opposition. He ate at the king's table. Isn't God brilliant? Doesn't God take our weaknesses? Doesn't he give us a future in spite of our weaknesses? Don't our weaknesses become glory to the Father? Doesn't Paul say, I was cheap among sinners, but I am here because of Jesus? Isn't that the power in our testimonies? Doesn't our hearts sing when we hear people with a history of drug addiction or broken families? When we hear people stand up and say, that was me, but because of Jesus, I am here. I get so emotional when, when we sing, all my life, he has been faithful. Because in my life, he's been so faithful. Do you think I deserve to stand up here in front of you? Absolutely not. 
And that's not false modesty, so you like me. That's actually God's truth. As leaders, when we forget that we are still becoming more and more like Jesus, we become very dangerous people. Alan Hurst says in his book that leadership is always secondary, discipleship is always primary in the life of any person in this world. We are all together becoming more and more like Jesus. All of us. And that's what the church is called. And you know, if I was writing the story and we're coming to an end, the credits would roll up and have a tear in my eye and that would be it. And we would call that the Disney version. And that would be great. But the Bible doesn't do PR. It doesn't spin. The Bible's truth. And actually, this isn't the end of the story. Because although David does this lovely thing, David isn't Jesus. David falls. David goes from this. He sins with Bathsheba. He murders Bathsheba's husband. And as a result, he almost loses the kingdom but for God's faithfulness. Because Absalom comes, and Absalom tries to wrestle the kingdom from David. Absalom is one of David's good-looking sons who plays the PR game. And David, because of his sin, has to run from Jerusalem. And he's in the desert. And who pops up again? Mephibosheth. Because he's on the run in the desert, and he meets Ziba. And Ziba is in the desert with a big train of donkeys and all this food designed to help David out. And David says, Ziba, what are you doing here? I've I've brought you all this food. And David's question is, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, he's turned bad, David. He didn't leave. He's he's at home with Absalom. He he thinks the kingdom's going to be restored to him, all of his kingdom, right? And he's back there. And that must have broke David's heart. And David says, well, all I've given Mephibosheth is then yours. And you think, what happened there? And then David eventually gets the kingdom back, right? And then he gets back into Jerusalem. And he's putting things right again. And who pops up? Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth comes down, and his hair's really long, and his nails are long, and he's unkempt. And Mephibosheth says, you know, I'm so glad to see you back. I haven't washed my hair or cut my nails since you've left. I've been waiting for you. And David looks at Ziba, and David looks at Mephibosheth, and he doesn't know what to do. And, and David doesn't know where to believe Ziba, because Ziba brought all this stuff from the desert, and he, he, he doesn't know where to believe Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, you know, I was going to go, but Ziba tricked me, and it's his fault. And we get this, uh... And David just, the Bible actually doesn't tell us who's telling the truth. So David says, okay, all my stuff, okay, I'll just divide it in half. And the message and why I'm telling you that is because it would be nice not to tell you that. But what you've got to remember is, as we bring people to the table of grace, as we redeem people's identity, including our own, this will get messy. People are messy. I've worked in business, and I've worked in church. And I tell guys in business, leading in business is a piece of cake compared to leading in church. Church is really tough. And when you bring people to the table of grace, me included, who are broken, you're going to get broken people doing broken things, aren't you? 
And as people are having their identities renewed, you're going to find clashes because we're not there yet. We go towards the kingdom. I remember being heartbroken because a, a group of leaders weren't totally getting what I was saying. And my friend and, man, my friend and mentor, Fanta Clark, told me, Greg, if people walked away from Jesus, they're certainly going to walk away from some things you say. Isn't he right? The Apostle Paul, didn't he have a Barney with one of his followers in the Barnabas and they decided to go separate ways? Didn't he accuse Peter to his face? Look, it's great telling you about the table of grace. It's great telling you about redeeming identities, but I would, be tell I would be selling you a pup if I told you that was the end. It's not the end. The end is this. It is messy. And as a church, as you bring people in, as you work with people, as you work together, this is going to get really messy. But if we're prepared for that, if we understand that, if we can bring people to the table of grace, but still sit at the table of grace, if we can have grace with our brothers and sisters, if we can understand that the journey to the kingdom is establishing God's kingdom of grace out there and in here, we're ahead of the game. If we can give people grace because we can understand that we're all redeeming our identities together. And if we can have an appreciation that it's going to get messy, I think that's the way to lead. I fear for churches that think that it's going to be easy. I fear for marriages that think that it's going to be easy. My wife and I do marriage classes. And in our marriage classes, we tell people, be prepared for conflict. Be prepared for mess. And we tell them that because we want them to survive. If we told them it was easy, and the Disney version, when they had a row, they would think, well, this is all wrong. It's not wrong when you have mess. It's wrong when you can't forgive because of that mess. And it's wrong because you don't understand your identity in that mess. And it's right to appreciate that we're all messy and all broken. And so as I finish this morning, my encouragement to you guys as Journey Church is this. Do not forget the glorious mission of establishing God's kingdom of grace. As people come near to the table of grace, do not forget the need to make people not more like your leaders at the front, please God, no, but more and more like Jesus. Do not forget this will get messy and people will let us down and leaders will fall, but King Jesus will never fall and his kingdom will never pass away. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me pray and then Gary, I think, is going to lead us into communion. Father, we thank you that you are a good father. We thank you that you are a good God. All our lives you have been faithful, and all our lives you have been so, so good. As Gentiles, none of us have a seat at the table. As broken Jews, none of them had a seat at the table either. But you didn't just be a benevolent king when your reign started. You stepped out of heaven and you suffered for us. And you bled for us. And as we go around your table now, we remember that. 
We think about your table, and I see a picture now of reserved stickers all over the table. And we think about those outside now that we want to bring to your kingdom of grace. And we pray, please, God, that people would come and take their seats, and we bring them there. Please help us not to be like you described the Jews, closing the door in the face of people and not lifting a finger to help. Please, God, and when we mess up, will you give us grace? Lord, we want to become more like Jesus. Lord, we want to be sorry for the things and times that we want our way. And we pray, please, God, that you would come and come amongst us by the power of your Spirit, and you would change us to be more like your Son, Jesus. And Father, in the mess of this, you never once told us to build your church, but you said, I will build my church. And Lord, as your children go around your table and play in the mess, Father, will you give us grace and send us power in Jesus' name. Amen.